Let us join in prayer for God to open our eyes as we read his word. It is the Holy Spirit that brings to us a true understanding of the word. Heavenly Father, we pray that by the by the work of the Spirit, you would open our eyes that we might behold great and wonderful things from your word. Teach us, Lord. Teach us the truth of your word. Teach us the truth about Jesus Christ, our prophet, priest, and king, and increase our faith in him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone talked to me after the service this morning, and they said they were having a really tough time today. And I immediately thought, well, okay, they're going through some difficult times at home, perhaps, and they're, maybe they, they need to go in side room and we should pray together. But he said this, my difficulty was that as a Presbyterian, I just could not bring myself to shout amen during the message today. It, and, and I said, it's okay, it's okay. Presbyterians were not the frozen chosen. I, I hate that description of Presbyterians. We are not the frozen chosen. But we do say amen on the inside. I, I got to tell you, if it, not just tonight, but any time. And I think this is true for other pastors, too. And we have some great, powerful preachers in our presbytery. If the Spirit moves you to signify that you are in agreement with what the pastor says, believe me, it won't shake me up if you say amen. <laughs> you might get another 10 minutes. Well, okay, that too, that too. But, but you might get another 10 minutes out of the sermon, though. I, I don't know, you know. <laughs> but anyway... Uh, we are not the frozen chosen. We are warm-blooded believers in Jesus Christ. Calvin had that symbol of the, the Christian life, the, the heart that was a fire, not frozen, but a fire, a flame with love and devotion and gratitude to God. My heart I give you promptly and sincerely was Calvin's motto. Psalm 2. I mentioned I'd preached to the, this uh, passage to you about five or six months ago. Uh, we're going to take it a little differently from a little different angle tonight, just focusing in on a couple of the verses rather than an overview of the whole psalm. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Hear the reading of God's word. Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is the first of the Messianic Psalms, and I'm going to be preaching from Psalms in the evening services. This is the first of the Messianic Psalms. So maybe before we dive into the passage itself, we should talk a little bit about the Messianic Psalms. The Psalms of the Messiah. What does the Messiah mean? Well, it literally, it's the Hebrew word for the anointed one. Uh, in Greek, the word is Christ, Christos. So when we talk about Jesus Christ, we're actually using two terms. Jesus, his human name, God will save his people from their sins. Jehovah saves. That's what Jesus means, Jehovah saves. And Christ, the anointed one, the redeemer, the prophet, priest, and kings, one that refers to his human identity, the other refers to his mediatorial offices. Prophet, priest, and king. The Messianic Psalms are really Psalms, well, as the name suggests, Psalms about the Messiah, the Anointed One, and they, they do focus on those three, uh, three areas of his, of his work, of his mediatorial work. They are written mainly by David, mainly by David, and they are based on an event that took place in David's life. All of these messianic psalms flow from this event. It's really a covenant that God made with, with David. It was on the occasion that David had determined in his heart to build the temple for God. Uh, that uh, the God had been worshipped in this tabernacle, this tent, that had to be set up and moved and set up and moved, and the, the whole arrangement of the tabernacle was suited for a nation that was on the move, that were, that were essentially nomads and wandering and so forth and going from place to place. But God had settled Israel in the land, and through David's military victories and other events, God had given them a greater amount of security and uh, stability in the land, and David believed it was time now for, uh, for to, to, to build a, a permanent place of worship, a temple for the Lord. And we find this story in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So if if you would turn in your Bibles to that passage, we'll read the story of God making a covenant with David on this event or on the, at this time when David had determined in his heart to build a temple for the Lord. And I again remind you, these messianic psalms flow out of this covenant that God made with David. 
Verse 1 of 2 Samuel 7. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly." From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, uh, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So this covenant that God made is the fountain from which all the messianic psalms flow. Just thinking a a little bit about that covenant, what God said to David, um, first of all, your son will be my son. Wow. Uh, And what does Psalm 2 say? This day, you are my son. This day, I have begotten you. I will never take my love from your son. Now, that makes us kind of think a bit. Well, what about... What about the people of Israel? What about the line of David? What I mean, these kings that followed after David were no great kings. They were pretty bad, actually. There is Solomon who builds who is the actual builder of the temple. But that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. God actually be talking about another son of David? Yeah. 
you know where this goes, don't you? God is actually the fulfillment of this covenant is not in Solomon. It's not in any of David's, uh, the, the line of kings that come from David, except one who is called the Son of God and the Son of Man. And Paul, in the beginning of the book of Romans, says that concerning his human nature, he is called the Son of David. And concerning his divine nature, he's proclaimed to be the Son of God by the resurrection. It is... It is Jesus, Son of God and Son of David, who builds the house that cannot be destroyed. And you and I live in that house as part of his church. The church is that house. The kingdom that he establishes will not fail and it will not be destroyed. That's why when Jesus came, actually when John the Baptist became, uh, began his ministry, and when Jesus began, began his ministry, the Bible tells us that be, they began by proclaiming the what? The gospel of the kingdom. Well, that's an interesting way of de describing the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. Well, the good news of the kingdom is the one who was promised, the son of David, who will establish David's throne forever, who will build the house that cannot be torn down by the Babylonians or the Romans or anyone else. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That one has come. And the kingdom is founded in his righteousness, in his divine glory in his work as prophet, priest, and king. He is the Son of David. He is the Son of God. All messianic psalms flow from the truth of this promise that God made to David. So back to Psalm 2. You almost have to picture in your mind, I mean, the, the psalmist sets the scene here. Uh, the, the, the nations are raging. The kings of the earth are rising up. You have to picture in your minds a mob scene. All the nations of the earth, and especially all the leaders of these nations, gathering together, and they're shouting, and they're waving their fists at God. We will not obey you. We will not submit to your authority. We will not listen to your word. We reject you. Cast your cords, your commandments from us. And speaking of your Messiah, we will have nothing to do with him. And as they shake their fists in God's face, and as they shout their curses at him, and they give voice to their rebellious thoughts, God cowers in a little corner. Oh, I'm so afraid. They have tanks and battleships and, and, and atomic bombs, and, and they, could, they, could, they could do nothing. All the nations of the earth are but <laughs> dust in the balance, dust, a drop of water in a bucket. 
That's where all these kings, that's all their power. A drop of water. The Lord laughs. He holds them in derision. But then God says something, and it's re in response to these shouts and these 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 rebellious uh, statements. I we uh, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't want any restraints on us. We don't want God to tell us what we should do. We want to do whatever comes to our minds. We want to be our own law. Autonomy. You know what that word means? It means self-law. The law comes from ourselves. The law is whatever we say it is. The, the way that we run our empires and our nations is, is completely in our own discretion, and we reject any higher authority than ourselves. Sound familiar? But God says this, in response to them, he laughs, and he speaks to them in his wrath, and he terrifies them, notice the words used here, in his fury. This is not, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. This is the response to rebellious nations and leaders. He speaks to them in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury, saying this, As for me, and that, that introduction, as for me, sets this statement up in opposition to what the nations have said and the rulers have said. Cast their cords asunder. Away with you, God. Away with the Messiah. Away with your authority. All, away with all of it. But God says, as for me, here's my statement on the matter. Here's what I say about this. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And that's where we're going to focus tonight. What does that statement mean? I, in opposition to your rebellion, here's what the Lord declares, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, Zion is the place where the temple was built. There are many places in the scriptures that, that tell us that the temple was the place of worship. My, it, it's, it's a house of prayer. Isaiah writes, it's a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus said that when he came to the temple and had to cleanse the temple, God had said, this is a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. Zion is the place of the temple, and the temple largely, mainly, is known as the place of worship. But reading the scriptures, you will also see something else. The temple is the place where God reigns. Zion is the, the hill on which God reigns. Raids. Again, this is using imagery and 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 late locations and so on that were familiar to the people. It's not like it's not like God is confined to Zion Hill, but that is where He will set His Messiah, His King. I have set my King. You may rebel against my authority. You may rebel against the Messiah, but 
I have determined to set him on Zion, my holy hill, to establish his kingdom and his reign forever and ever. It will not fail. Satan himself cannot defeat it. Then another person speaks. In verse 7, the person who's speaking is actually the Messiah himself. I will tell of the decree. And then he goes on to explain, the Lord, that is Jehovah, said to me, that is the Messiah. So we have the Father speaking to the Son here. The Son relating this, this conversation that the Father has had with him and the revealing of the revelation, if you will, from the Father to the Son about his reign and his establishment as the king on Zion's hill. I will tell of the decree. Notice that word, decree. A decree from God is an inviolable command. It cannot be broken. It establishes reality. Think about that. That's kind of an interesting worldview question. Where does reality come from? Quick answer, God's decree. God's decree is the basis of reality. How does God work out his decrees in his work of creation and providence? This is part of his providence. His providence is that part of his decree in which he, uh, in in a most holy, wise, and powerful way, preserves and governs all his creatures and all their actions. It's a total worldview encompassed in that, in that statement. By the way, I'm, I'm, Tim is over here. I, it's my theory, <laughs> for what it's worth, that people develop all kinds of emotional and psychological problems because they are completely out of tune with the reality. The reality is God's decree and what the decree establishes. We go, we drive ourselves nuts, crazy, because we will not recognize the decree and what it, what it means. It does not want, we do not want to allow it into our thinking. And, and I think from that fact in our, in, the, in our alone, our minds and our hearts, our will, our emotions go far askew, and we end up being self-destructive and divorced from reality. Okay, end of my theory there. Oh, I get an amen. <laughs> wow. Even behind the mask. Wow. I heard that. So the Lord said to me, now this is the Messiah himself, the Son of God, explaining to us, the audience of this psalm, what this decree is and what it means. What are some of the terms of the decree that God has established? Well, he will establish his king on Zion, his holy hill, the place of, of, of his authority. I will tell of the decree. Point one, the Lord said to me this. First of all, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Okay, well, yes, remembering that promise to David, your son, I will be a father to your son. 
I will be a father to your son. And, and, and yes, that was true for David in, in a kind of a metaphorical sense. But it is literally true of Jesus Christ, who is God's Son. The Apostle Paul refers to this in uh, Acts chapter 13 in one of his first missionary uh, forays out, first missionary journey, and he begins to preach. <coughs> and he refers to Jesus Christ, who, uh, who has been raised from the dead, and he brings this statement in as, as part of his, his understanding of the significance of the resurrection. That the resurrection itself says something about Jesus and identifies him as the Son of God. You are my Son. This day I have begotten you. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the firstborn of all creation. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then the father says to the son, established on Zion's hill, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Ask me. I will make the nations. By the way, these are the very nations that are shaking their fist in God, God's face. They will not succeed. And this is why he laughs. I know what I'm going to do. <laughs> and there's nothing you, you presidents and kings and whatever you are, you premiers, whatever you are, you dictators, you tyrants, whatever you are, there is nothing you can do to shake my decree. And you and your nations will be the possession of my son. And he will rule over you. We don't want your rule. We don't want your laws. We don't want your authority. But you will bow the knee. Every tongue will confess. And every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. You and I will do so because we have been touched by his grace. Those who refuse to believe will bow because his foot is on their neck as a conqueror. Much better to be touched by grace. Can I get an amen? On Senate. <laughs> Much better to be touched by grace. And that's why Jesus sent his church into the world to proclaim the good news, the gospel, that there might be multitudes and multitudes more than the sand of the sea or the stars of the heaven, who bowed cheerfully and gratefully and willingly before Jesus Christ and lift up his name as King of kings and Lord of lords. In the book of Revelation, early in the book, and by the way, I, I do want to remind you, I, and I think this is true, and I, I'm not sure if anybody would, would really disagree with this, but in a way, the book of Revelation is an extended commentary on Psalm 2. 
It lays it open in more detail and shows how it unfolds that the king takes his throne and he comes back and even quotes in several parts of, of the book of Revelation from this psalm itself. There's clear links between Psalm 2 and the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, toward the, uh, I said, the beginning of the book, a scene in heaven takes place. And in chapter 4, there's a description of the throne and one who sits on the throne. And that one who sits on the throne is never described in detail himself because you really can't bear to look at him. The scene is described, the throne is described, the rainbow over him is described, but very little about him, if anything. But he is seated on the throne. In chapter 5, one who is like a lamb who has been slain steps forward, and he stretches out his hand to receive a scroll from the one who sits on the throne. That scroll is a symbol of the inheritance that the Father gives the Son. Ask me, and I will give the nations of the earth as your possession, as your heritage. We would use the word inheritance. And that giving of the scroll from the one who sits on the throne to the Lamb who has been slain, and he is accompanied by praise. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and glory and riches and honor and dominion. As he receives that scroll, that is the symbol of the honor and the riches and the power, the glory, the authority, and the dominion that he receives from his Father. It is the fulfillment of, ask me and I will give the nations as your inheritance, your heritage. You will possess the very nations that rise up against us. A little later on, in Revelation chapter 11, there's this declaration. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The next chapter is the scene of a woman who gives birth to a male child. In Revelation 12, 5, it says, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Where does that imagery begin? The rod of iron. Psalm 2. Psalm 2. He is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Revelation 19. Here is the return of the king, to borrow a title from Tolkien. Where do you think Tolkien got that idea? Okay. The biblical imagery and the line, the scriptural line, the storyline, if you will, of the scriptures is actually the foundation for the, the whole trilogy. But I digress again. Revelation 19, beginning of verse 11. I don't know if I can get through this. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... 
The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, taken right out of Psalm 2. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If this passage does not make you fall to your knees and cry out to God, Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, I don't know what will. Many people, many true believers, actually many heroic stalwart defenders of the faith have looked at this passage and says it means something else. Even someone, one of my Presbyterian heroes, B.B. Warfield, said that this passage, the sword coming out of the mouth, is actually just the preaching of the gospel. But that's not how it's... Pay attention to the words. Pay attention to the context. With this sword, he strikes down the nations, and he rules over them with a rod of iron. This is the picture of the son claiming his inheritance. This is the picture of the son coming back, conquering his enemies, who are also our enemies, laying waste to their pretensions. And on his, on his robe, on his thigh, he has a name written, a name that every one will confess and acknowledge that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. The psalmist records these words as the Son lays out for us the promise of the Father, the decree of the Father. I will tell of the decree, and then what follows is, in the next verse, is really laying out what this decree entails. He will rule them with a rod of iron. What does that mean? Well, the rod of iron is the symbol of authority, but it is a rod of iron, and the, the, the concept of the idea conveyed in that imagery is that it is a rule of inflexible righteousness. It is, it is the exact opposite of what we experience in our world. It is the rule of inflexible, because iron does not bend, inflexible righteousness. For those who love God and who 
gratefully call upon the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that ring of a, the rod of iron is actually a blessing. Consider how God's people have labored and suffered under the reign of man. And consider the liberation of the people of God under the reign of Christ. You and I are part of this decree. And we're not named there, but as we unfold other passages of Scripture, we find that we also are with this king. We are his possession, too. But in a wonderful display of amazing grace, the king shares his reign with his people. Listen to what Jesus says to the church at Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He's talking about the church, the, those who overcome in the church at Thyatira. I will give you authority over the nations, and you, my faithful believers who overcome, you will rule over the nations with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. It echoes all the way back to Psalm 2 and all the way back to the covenant made with David. Now, can I explain every detail about biblical eschatology? No. Neither could John. There were things that were kept from John. Neither could Daniel. There were things that were kept from Daniel. But what we do have, and what we do understand, we should embrace in full faith. When God promises his son to give his son the nations as an inheritance, and that he will rule them with a rod of iron, and then the son promises to his people that as they overcome Satan, as they overcome sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil, that he will share his reign with them, and they too will. I've got to believe that means something concrete. I may not understand exactly how it comes about or what it entails, but I have to believe that it is a reality or will be a reality. There will be many questions answered on that day when the trumpet sounds. Some of our theories will be quickly thrown aside. Some of our theories will probably seem to be by and large right, but maybe not 100%. And that's why when we talk about the details of eschatology, what the, you know, the last days and what is to come and so forth, 
we should probably express those thoughts with a sense of modesty. But what God says we need to believe. That promise, that decree is inviolable. It cannot be broken. And these words mean something real. Something that, that takes place in time and space and involves kings and nations and you and me. Let us embrace that and let us wait patiently for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. But we have promises in your word that reach to us, that reach to David, and through David to Christ, and through Christ to us, that we will participate in his reign, that we will be uh, raised up before him, that we will proclaim his glory and serve him forever. We pray, Father, that you would encourage our hearts this day, this evening, with these words from Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen.